Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. All right, listeners, I have a spicy topic for you today. But if you read the name of this recording, you already well know that. So, I want to talk today about what I consider a corruption, you might call it a virus. I would simply call it probably a hypocrisy that has entered into Christianity. I'm not sure how recently, uh, but it's certainly one that many of us have had experience with. So put yourself in this position. You're talking with somebody, maybe they have that kind of sparkle in their eyes, not the sort of sparkle that really makes you think, oh, this person is really affectionate or really open or something like that, but kind of the sparkle that gives you the impression of, I think I'm about to be given a sales pitch. And as they talk, you know, they keep quoting these phrases that sound like they should be something, or maybe if you're a Christian, you know they are something specific. They'll be saying things like, he knows the plans he has for you to prosper you and not harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Or maybe they'll say things like, he works all things out for good for those who love him. And on and on and on, over and over, quotation, quotation, at the beginning or the end or both of almost every sentence they say. If you've had that kind of an experience, you probably have encountered what I am calling the cult of churchianity. Now, the reason why I call it a cult, I will build throughout this conversation. First, I just want to start with that very example. And there are other, there are many different sorts of examples, and I'll go through a few of them. Another example of somebody who's a member of the cult of churchianity is somebody who just keeps droning on about how they want to have a positive effect on the world, and they want to change the world for the better. And when you really get into the meat and potatoes of how they're doing that or what their lifestyle really is, maybe you'll get, you know, um, examples of an occasional charity event, um, something that they attended, or maybe wisdom that they're simply gaining about the scriptures. But when it comes to really exerting themselves, growing in knowledge, doing a great deal of work to affect the world in a positive manner, it's not really something they're giving their lives to. It's just kind of a preoccupation. Anyways, but let's deal with the first example that I gave. The one who just keeps on spouting out phrase after phrase, verse after verse. What is it that they're really doing? Now, I'm not speaking out against knowing Scripture, even memorizing Scripture, talking about Scripture, I have people in my life, my own roommate or housemate at the moment is extremely good at this, and we have very productive and fruitful conversations about the scriptures. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of person who spouts these things off almost as if it is a mantra. And in my opinion, it actually is a mantra. Now, mantras, if we're going to go to the straight Hindu version or idea of mantra itself, I don't actually have a problem with it. Mantras can be extremely effective. If you are, for example, in a really stressful, straining situation, 
and you go back into the positive things that you know, the po positive phrases that you know the meanings of, you can define them if asked. Um, to repeat them in that kind of a circumstance can be very helpful. It's kind of a uh, in-the-moment mind, not necessarily mind over matter, that to me is a myth, but mind over emotion, mind over stress, mind over anxiety. Mantra, in, the, in a very real sense, can be extremely helpful in that sort of a situation. But that isn't this situation. You're in a conversation with this churchian, um, and they're just spouting off this verse, spouting off that verse, spouting off that verse, spouting off that verse. Now, some of you might be, might already, those of you who are Christians might already be wanting to push up against me, and I totally understand it. Hey, 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 Jesus and the apostles, the apostle Paul, they all did that too, right? They quoted scripture, and they quoted scripture, and they quoted scripture. Even Jesus on the cross quoted a psalm right before he died. And I get that. And like I said earlier, I don't have anything against quotations of scripture, understanding the scripture, memorization of scripture. I one time memorized Exodus, I believe, 21, which is the Ten Commandments itself. Nothing against that whatsoever. But when we look at the apostles and Jesus quotation, sorry, quoting scripture in the New Testament, they use it within the frame of an argument, of an argument or an idea, something that they are presenting. In other words, you can tell the difference between their quotations of scripture and a parrot going, Holly, want a cracker? My point is, there is an actual movement of the cerebrum when the person is saying it and in the person who is listening to the statement or argument or idea. When Jesus uses the scriptures, he's using them to illuminate the not just the scriptures, but the ideas within the scripture. Typically, churchians, when they are quoting scripture over and over again, they're simply going back into their memory banks. And if you pay attention, just, just talk to some of these people. I'm not saying it's an enjoyable experience, but talk to some of these people, some of these Christians. And, and by the way, by the way, as I say that, I do mean to say, I don't necessarily think that churchians are not Christians. However, churchianity, to me, is a corruption and a virus within Christianity itself. And while I don't think it breaks an individual's Christianity, I do think that it makes it extremely annoying. It makes it extremely abrasive. It makes it extremely unhelpful, and I'll get into some of that in a bit. But let me go back to what I was saying. The use of a parrot as an analogy here I think is very apt. What does a parrot do? A parrot learns mere mimicry. A parrot learns how to say certain words and phrases. And very often, you can teach a parrot to say specific things based on specific stimuli. So... If you tell a bird, and you can do this with actions as well, if you tell a bird, big wings, or whatever the command may be, they will very likely raise their wings if you've taught them well. Of course, you can get a dog to do something similar, but they will do the same thing with words. If you teach a bird that they will get a pistachio as a reward for speaking well, for answering questions, 
in the expected way, then they will say what you want them to say. And of course, the questions or statements that you use as a prompting will probably lead to, in most cases, them saying exactly what is expected to say. Or if they want to start that entire event, if they want to, say, get a pistachio, they might say something like, want a treat? Want a treat? Want a treat? Now, the reason why I'm using this analogy, again, just talk to some of the churchians. See how it is, in what circumstances they begin to raise up all of these different verses. You start talking about a very difficult situation, but they're not going to talk to you in rational terms with arguments and perspective and wisdom. They're going to say, well, God works all things out for good for those who love him. Or if you are dealing with a situation of purpose, feeling purposeless, you don't know where you're going in life, you don't know where to go next. Well, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Now, if you're a Christian, I think especially, that is extremely annoying and deeply unhelpful. Why? Well, we ought to know this. Especially the churchians themselves ought to know this. Read the book of Job. When Job was suffering, ill, had lost his entire family, his friends, his friends came to him and granted, they just hung out with him and mourned with him for seven full days and nights. They, in my opinion, were doing a pretty darn good job of consoling somebody who was morose, who was deeply sad and grieved and devastated devastated for that amount of time. But after the seven days, if I'm remembering it correctly, they started to open their freaking gobs. They started spouting out a bunch of platitudes. They started spouting out, oh, but this is the reality of God. This is the real situation. You have to have sinned, Job, because God doesn't punish people who haven't done wrong. And on and on, they droned and argued back and forth. And they didn't give Job an ounce of information that he didn't already either wrestle with or know himself. And that is very often the exchange between a churchian and an honest Christian. The Christian already knows all this stuff. We know these scriptures. They're some of the most commonly known, commonly reiterated scriptures there are. We already know this. We already know this. How about we have a rational discussion about what is actually going on? And by the way, at the end of the book of Job, God specifically points out that the friends of Job did not speak well of him. Read it. The entire time, the friends are talking about, quote, the truths about God and reality. And then God comes along and says that they did not speak well about himself. So they did not help the situation, nor apparently, according to God himself, did they speak correctly about reality. And most, again, of what they did was just give a bunch of platitudes. So Job, of course, and you can see if you read in the book how he responded to those friends, was mostly just extremely agitated. If you read it in the message, which I think illuminates some of the mood of that book very well, 
Job was sarcastic with them a lot. Now, I don't know if that really translates, you know, back to the original Hebrew language and so on and so forth, but if we put ourselves in this same kind of a situation and you have any kind of gall or, um, what's the word, shrewdness? That's not quite the right term, but I think you know where I'm going. Um, yeah, you're going to respond showing a bit of your agitation, showing a bit of your annoyance. And this is one of the great weaknesses of churchianity. See, what they're really doing, again, is they're just stimulus response. Stimulus response. And I'm not saying there's no thought in it. Of course, you know, deep down, most of these people have had a great deal of learning and teaching and studying about these scriptures, and they've been taught, you know, in some cases, what is the original Greek or Hebrew meaning of this word in the original writing, and so on. Like, somewhere deep down, they do know, many of them anyway, do know what these verses actually mean. But that's not what comes up in these discussions. They just spout off the verse. And think that that is an argument in and of itself. Well, how about, for example, instead of saying God paid the price for our sins, you don't just quote that or the scriptures that say that. You talk about the fact that Jesus was the propitiation for the separation and sins of mankind. Or how about you put it in a way that's even less commonly stated? In another one of my podcasts, I use this word. How about saying Jesus paid the penance that was owed between us and God to restore relationship with himself? If you say not the just the verse, but the meaning of the verse, you notice that you are obliged to think. And should that not be the point? Should you not bring up these points, these scriptures, these ideas, in order to stimulate thought. But see, the stimulation of thought is specifically not what is inspired when somebody is doing the essential same of, or same as, ah, probably want a cracker, ah, hello, ah, give me a kiss. Stimulus response, stimulus response. And sometimes the cancellation of thought is actually the goal. I'll give you an example. When a churchian and a Christian are talking, and the Christian is bringing up something that is actually a pretty difficult topic. Maybe it's something going on in their lives. Maybe it's something that they're just wrestling with philosophically, metaphysically. And the churchian, deep down, doesn't want to face this question, doesn't want to actually think through the matter. They're not equipped. They haven't been, been actually they haven't been taught how to actually think through deep, difficult philosophical, theological issues. They've just been fed verse after verse after verse and told, hey, if you know these things and if you know the truths behind these scriptures, everything will go just fine and you can answer any question and you can defend the scriptures kind of raw and without any substance, then what they're going to do is knowing that you are a fellow Christian and that you too, quote, believe in the same things, they will begin quoting scripture after scripture, essentially saying, 
I don't want to deal with this. You believe in this too. You have to submit to me if I give you a scripture that you mutually believe in, so shut up. Now, of course, it doesn't come out like that, right? But the quoting of scripture in those circumstances is a fear response. They just want to stop the conversation. So they're, the, they're not just trying to cancel out your thinking. They're trying to cancel out their own thinking. They haven't been taught how to scrutinize, how to be skeptical, how to think through difficult objections. They've just been fed a line of essential salesman-like pitches to solve all of their problems. I mean, how does this kind of thing start? Again, this is one of the areas where it really does compare to a lot of cults. And to be, you know, to be quite honest, I'm not saying that churchianity is specifically a cult, because it's something that grows within the church itself, which is why it's called, why I call it churchianity. But make no mistake, they behave in a very cult-like manner. How does it start? I already mentioned part of it. If you know these scriptures, you know the truths of these scriptures, you can face any problem. You can solve any problem. If you know what God has said in these and these scriptures, you will have no troubles in your life. You will not, not have suffering. You will be able to get out of suffering, etc., etc. And of course, that latter point, when it is actually said, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that it's said in every case, when this is, is originally spread, but that goes directly against some of the words of Jesus himself. So going briefly into the other example that I gave, the kind of person who's just all about helping the world and changing the world for the better. Many of them were taught growing up in various churches, it's certainly not all churches, or ministries or what have you, seminary. They were taught, whether by actual word, in actual words or just kind of through some of the words, lessons, deeds of the teachers, that in order to be a, quote, Christian, what you really need to do is volunteer. What you really need to do is get involved in charity. What you really need to do is give money to X. Y or Z. See, they were fed a line that if they did a certain set of actions by rote, if they followed a certain set of bullet points, bippity-boppity-boo, they're a Christian. So, of course, when you're talking to a churchian, they're going to give you, I want to change the world. Why? Because they actually want to change the world for the better? No! Because that's what they believe they need to do to be a, quote, Christian. Now, to an extent, and this is why it's a pernicious lie, that's true. Being a Christian, living as a Christian, does mean bettering the world. But it's not in that order. It doesn't happen in that way. It is not, you must do these things in order to be a Christian. It is... It, what it actually is, is that those who approach God, establish a relationship with the Lord, and become more like him, will affect the world in a positive way. See, the difference between a churchian and a Christian when it comes to affecting the world in a positive way is that the churchian 
goes out and does his positive world actions or you know has his positive world effect as an event or a preoccupation a christian changes the world in a positive way as a part of his everyday lifestyle it is something that exudes from his being it is something that he wants to do from the core of who he or she is why? Because that's what happens when we have positive, intimate relationships with individuals, human or God, that are genuinely good, positive, virtuous people who are affecting the world in a good way themselves. That's how, it, how the right form of things actually spreads. It is not through mantras. It is not through copy-pasting, parrot-talking. It's through relationship. That, that gets down to the core of who we are. And another thing I want to share about the sheer hypocrisy that can exist in this is that people who really believe that all they have to do or the main thing they have to do to be a Christian is to volunteer, to give money, and effectively to have public benevolence. Oh, they can do it all right. They can do it pretty easily, and a lot of them, at least for a while, will seem extremely passionate about it. But those very same people might go back home or to their group of friends and be pedantic. They could be passive-aggressive. They could be even abusive. And see no contradiction whatsoever. See, as long as they have done their charitable deeds and checkmarked that box, they're not obliged to be any kind of reasonable or to have character or to live out virtue in their own private lives. Now ask yourself this question. Between the two, the person, for example, who cares about living well, cares about having private virtue, cares about doing good to their neighbors and not necessarily going like all out, you know, sharing their money or whatever it might be, but just tries to live reasonably and well. Say that person is your neighbor or you have the person whose sparkly eyed is always talking about how much good they want to do in the world and is going out and doing these charitable things or maybe going to church events and singing praise and worship songs over and over again all the time, and that's almost their entire lifestyles. But then when you meet them at home and they are your neighbor, they might swindle you. They might be passive-aggressive. They might be avoidant. They might be downright mean. Which would you rather have as your neighbor? Which would you ha rather have as your wife? Now, I'm not saying that these are the only two alternatives, of course. Christians, as I've already said, should be people who do do charitable things. But as Malcolm Muggeridge said, and said quite well, public benevolence is no replacement for private virtue. So once again, I want to be clear. Am I saying that I'm against volunteering? That I'm against doing these charity events? Helping people build houses or fences or feeding the, feeding the poor and suffering? And hungry? Absolutely not. It is James himself, brother of Jesus, who pointed out that true religion is this, taking care of the widows and orphans, 
And I know he said more, but that's part of it. So no, I'm absolutely not against doing any of these things. But if we're going to do them as a Christian, we don't do them in order to be a Christian. We do them because we are. Because we have that relationship to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. That's where it comes from. If you're doing it in order to be a Christian, which is a deep, pernicious lie that is going to be very hard to extract, especially from the churchians, because if you do, you have to first break down their basic idea of what it means to be a Christian. That's going to be hard to do. But you don't do these things in order to be a Christian. You do these things because you already have a loving relationship. You can do it out of the security of knowing that even if you don't do it perfectly, even if you don't actually help that person, which is probably often going to be because they weren't actually willing, it's okay. Your duty is simply to, and your desire is simply to have an effect, uh, at least attempt to have, an, a posit- have a positive effect on the world. It's not actually to succeed. But a churchian will insist that they succeed, or at least try to believe that they do succeed, even if they don't. So, before I end, I want to point out what I think is the most cult aspect, cultish aspect, of churchianity. See, when a churchian is talking to a Christian, or You could even use a churchian talking to a churchian. And they start spouting out, not just verses that they've heard, but common Christian phrases. Things that are talked said over and over again in seminary, said over and over again in in some churches. What they're really doing is they're just patting each other on the back. Again, there's not really a whole lot of thought that's going on. It's just... You believe these things? I believe these things too. How wonderful. You're a part of the in crowd. Have you gone out and done your charity event this month? You did? Good. You are part of the in crowd. Have you memorized these verses? Good for you. Pat on the back. You are one of us. See, what that sounds like to me is, do you believe in the science? Do you believe that we will all be saved if we take the vaccine? Good for you. You are one of the in crowd. You are one of the believers. Oh, you don't believe that the vaccination is what will save humanity from the threat of Rona? You you are a pariah. You must be separated from us, for you are not pure. It's propaganda. There is not substance to any of this. Nobody's arguing facts. Nobody's arguing reason. Nobody's even arguing philosophy or theology. It's just spouting what we've been taught to believe, what we've been taught to say. What it is, is a purity test. When you're in an actual cult, The Kool-Aid drinking, people dying kind of cult. 
killing themselves. The same kind of thing happens. Do you know the secret truth? Some of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospels that were written well after the actual canon Gospels and tried to make Jesus look like a very different person, had this kind of idea in it as well. It had cult-like ideas. There are only some people in the Gnostic Gospels that knew the real, secret, deep truths. They were led into a secret place with, quote, Jesus, not Jesus, of course, but led into a secret place and told the deep truths, and it was only they who ever knew it. This is the behavior of every cult. Do you know the secret truth? Ah, you know the password. You know the verse. You know what that man said up on stage, or whatever it might be. You are part of our crowd. You are one of us for the greater good. There's a reason why this stuff annoys, vexes, and tries the patience of genuine Christians, right, left, up, and down. It is, rather than an egg, it's a ping-pong ball. So you cut it to an egg, there's something inside. You have the white, you have the yolk, you have sustenance, you have something in there. There's something, in other words, that you can talk about. Cut into a ping-pong ball, you got nothing but air. There is nobody who can pick out a churchian faster than a Christian, a genuine Christian. Because we know, whether we address it or not, that if you ask them to substantiate what it is that they're quoting, what it is that they're talking about, if you ask them to get into a debate, into a real conversation, to present arguments about these things that they keep spouting out, you'll realize that even if they have been taught some things, they're pretty well unpracticed. They're going to start fumbling over themselves pretty darn quick. Churchianity is a cult. Or at very least, churchianity is cultish. It is because of churchianity that skeptics outside of Christianity Secular people are given ammunition to reject the church because they know, in many cases, that these people are as hollow as a ping pong ball. Now, I'm not saying they are as an individual. They could be cured of this for sure. Anybody could be. But it's a tempting thing when you are given the shallowest of arguments as a solution to all your woes, and you buy that. Giving that up means that you actually have to face the woes. You have to face the suffering. You have to face the doubts. You have to face the arguments. That is a hard thing for people to let go of, and that is the same kind of draw that a cult has. So, yes, spicy topic. I hope that you, my listeners, have found it very interesting, as always. And I will talk to you next time.